Hello and welcome to Inside the Artist Studio. My name is Sean Davis Newton, here of course representing the Cups and Cakes Network. I'm excited to share an interview today that I did. It's a pretty special one with Chris Murphy of Sloan. Talk about all kinds of things. We talk about how uh, his one and only car bit the dust. We of course chat a lot about the uh, recording and release of their brand new record, Steady. And, uh, and we talked a little bit near the end of the episode about CanCon and, and uh, how the band kind of uh, initially got signed by Geffen and then flourished across uh, Canada and the United States. Of course, there is some uh, foul language in this episode, so listener beware. And uh, if you want to check out more episodes of this podcast, as well as other audio, video, and written content, you can find all of that over on the Cups and Cakes Network website at cupsandcakespod.com. One more time for all y'all in the back, that's cups, the letter N, cakespod.com. Here's Chris Murphy of Sloan. My name is Chris Murphy, and I play in the rock band Sloan, and I have since... 1991 with my buddies Patrick Pentland, Andrew Scott, Jay Ferguson, and it's the same four guys since 1991. Sidebar, we have a, a utility guy, high harmonies, uh, keyboard guy, Gregory McDonald's with us since 2006. Perfect. Well, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. This is Inside the Artist Studio, the greatest, most generically named podcast on the whole planet. <laughs> Isn't that, oh, like inside the actor's studio? Is that not uh, copyrighted or I, I think, copywritten? I think that's what it's a riff on. I, I took this over from Jeff after he had been doing it for about a year. But, uh, all right. But, uh, so you inherited I it. I inherited the title. Don't arrest me, officer. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Well, uh, we're going to, we're going to run you through some rapid fire stuff and then we're going to talk a bunch about, sure. uh, about the new Sloan record. So, uh, without further ado, we'll kind of dive into it. Right on. Uh, do you have a signature dish that you cook or bake that uh, makes people think of you? No, I'm, I I never cooked my whole life, but uh, I've started to try to lose a couple pounds and not uh, eat so many carbs. So I've been trying to make little things like zucchini lasagna, which is basically just like cheese all over everything. So it's... <laughs> Um, yeah, my idea of cooking has always just essentially been heating things. Like, there's never been a chemical <laughs> reaction in anything I've ever cooked. It's essentially like heating eggs or heating whatever, heating craft dinner. I was a vegetarian as a as a young man, like in my 20s and late teens. But that essentially meant that I just ate French fries. Uh, <laughs> but I haven't had, you know, I just, I, I never did drugs and I never drank. So, like, food has been my vice. So, I just, I like junk food and all that kind of stuff that I've been trying to eat a little healthier. So I'm going to say for the purposes of this rapid fire essay question, uh, I guess I'm going to say this zucchini lasagna is this thing that I've been making for the past half a year. Yeah, yeah. Do you have like a go-to like, uh, not junk food, but like just bad meal, like something you know is kind of shit, but you love it? Zucchini lasagna is just basically... <laughs> A bowl of cheese. <laughs> um, I like, uh, you know, I didn't, you know, I ate, you know, McDonald's and stuff like that as a kid. I didn't eat that. I've been, I've been, I don't eat junk food like that. But uh, you know, I, I'll eat all of the chips till they're gone. Like I have a, you know, I've an issue. If we're backstage and there are chips, like I'm gonna eat them all, <laughs> and it's gross. And. Uh, and I'm, I just, I don't have very much self-control that way. Or I feel because, you know, I, I won't have eaten all day. And I'm like, I have barely eaten anything. So I'll just eat this entire bag of, you know, all dressed chips or whatever. Um, um, I don't know what my go-to meal is. I, and then I'll, then I'll be eating essentially, um, you know, dark chocolate in a, some kind of like trail mix. But it's essentially like peanuts, a.k.a. fat pills and chocolate. It's just not... <laughs> healthy at all <laughs> uh do you have a morning routine that you like to follow um my whole life i got up really late and stayed up late and since having kids my kids are 15 and 12 now so i've been doing it for a while but i still hate getting up even today i hate it. i hated getting up today <laughs> but uh usually get up and 
I try to get downstairs before the family, you know, if my wife is showering or whatever, and then I get, I try to make the kitchen kind of take, empty the dishwasher and take all the dishes that are on the counter and put them so that she can kind of, um, just sort of clear the deck so she can get their lunches ready for school and that kind of thing. And I usually drink tea. We don't have a coffee maker at home. but I mean, we do have one, but I just use it at Christmas when my family comes because <laughs> it's too much of a hassle to get it out of the cupboard. And we make t- my wife and I drink tea. And I like to have tea with my wife, but she's working now, and she wasn't working for a long time when the kids were young. So I always want to have tea at the same time as her. Yeah, yeah. But she often, you know, she's just like, I don't want tea right now. Then I'll have a tea. And then she's like, can you boil water for me? I'm like, what? I just had tea. <laughs> anyway, so uh, it's to try to have tea with my wife and get, uh, I mean, she does all the work, but I just have to sort of like clear the deck for her to get the kids ready for school. And then some t- I always, I often would walk one of the kids to school, but they're, they're don't, they don't want me to walk them anymore. I did walk my younger son to meet his friends who were walking to school yesterday. Yeah. But yeah, that's about it. Uh, when you are writing stuff down, use pencils or pens? Hmm. I... It, we, we do both. We have both. We have a lot of arts and crafts in the house, so there's lots of drawing paper and drawing pencils and drawing pens. Uh, but I probably more often... I have on my computer, um, I have a, my schedule, which is in a like a Word file, basically, like not not high tech at all. Like I just like to be able to see an entire month on a Word <laughs> Word yeah, document. Yeah. And then I put what I have to do, and if, if there are things I have to do, I have another Word document which is just called To Do, and it has thing, things like. Um, uh, cancel Apple TV December 3rd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, pay someone for helping us with this video. Uh, make sure to get paid for these tons shows I just did. I play in a band called Tons. I haven't been paid yet. Uh, books, loan rehearsals. Yeah, Go yeah. to West Camera. This kind of baloney. So that's all in a Word file. So it's not really... And I often put it in the, the notes file of my phone so i can see it if i'm out of the house yeah, on, yeah. My, on my phone yeah. yeah it's it's funny i think i always try to convince myself that i just don't do well with keeping track of things digitally and so it's like oh yeah i'll just write it down in a journal and then i'll remember and just either way i do it i do not remember to do things <laughs> i have uh, sort of the worst of both or the best of both where i'm writing it down not in a schedule i do have like an eye calendar as well um on my phone but I, I find it hard to get a sense of what's coming up right by looking at it anyway um so yeah i'm still kind of antiquated i'm definitely a a pre-computer guy i just turned 54 the other day so when computers were first starting when i was in grade six i was not uh inspired by computers they looked clunky and boring to me <laughs> and you know my neighbor across the street my good friend jim sinclair understood what computers were going to be and he by 1998 he had made 10 million dollars or something like he he did really well yeah yeah <laughs> uh, what's the first car you ever owned i have only ever owned one car and i owned it for only a few months and i was it was probably in 1989 80, 89, and it was a, a k car a cl- uh like a Chrysler K car or whatever. Okay. And it was in pretty pretty good shape. And the only thing I did with it of note is I drove it to Montreal to see the Bad Brains play. <laughs> yeah. And then the whole ride home, it kept saying, change the oil. I bought it off an old woman kind of thing. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, so it was in good shape, but I needed to change the oil. But I didn't know what that meant. I just kept buying oil and putting it in to the oil, where the oil goes. Yeah. And then it just, and then it just seized. Because I didn't know what changing the oil meant. So it was perfectly good car, and I, I destroyed it. Yeah, I had a similar thing. Just the first car I had was like a, it was a Chrysler Dynasty. And, uh, and very much did just, yeah, one day slowed down and stopped on the highway. And I was like, maybe it needs more oil. And then it ran for like 10 more minutes, and then it did the same thing and never started again. <laughs> My parents had two dynasties in a row, 
and I I smashed one of them into a tree. I was in two car accidents as a young man in my parents' cars and kind of wrecked two of them, and al- almost a third. But yeah, I smashed a dynasty, and uh, just I I was really sick and I was trying to drive to the hospital in a snowstorm. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> And I was kind of babysitting a kid too, and a kid was in the car. It was like it was a mess. <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding. <laughs> What's the weirdest job you've ever had? Uh, I've only had ever two jobs. The first was I was a bus boy uh, in a restaurant, like a high end restaurant in Halifax. I was fifteen, and I had to lie and say that I was sixteen. So I was always nervous I was going to get found out. But it only lasted a few weeks. The most embarrassing thing I had to do as that job, I had to go, uh, if somebody ordered a Caesar salad, I had to take a little tr- a cart and take it to their table and make a Caesar salad to their specifications. Right. But, you know, and all I ate at home was, you know, Alpha Gettys or something. You know, I didn't know what a Caesar salad was, <laughs> barely. And they're asking for anchovies. And I'm like, which of these is anchovies? <laughs> so I was, I was very soon fired. So I had that for, I'll, I'll say five weeks for the story because for, because the next job I had, I had for five years, and that was as a messenger porter. So I would, I was essentially like an, uh, within the hospital, the Victoria General Hospital in Toronto, in Halifax, I was essentially like a, uh, a mail carrier. But, you know, so I would take blood to the lab. They would call me on, they would use a beeper and call me, or they would call, I would, we would huddle in, in an office in, in the third floor, a bunch of us, and everybody was, Everybody was, I was, and I went into that job an innocent boy and I came out like a jaded old man. <laughs> uh, they were so harsh there. But uh, they would call me and say, take this, admit that this person is being admitted, take them to their room or there's this, there's this blood in emergency, take it to the lab. And, and the, the weirdest call that you can get as a porter is someone has died, take them to the morgue. <laughs> so I would, I would happen upon dead bodies yeah. as a 17 year old. And I would have to like put like take them from their bed and p- pull them onto a, a metal gurney and hear their head smash on the gurney and take them to the morgue that may be <laughs> full of dead bodies or maybe full maybe have a body in it that had been found after the person had died you know weeks before and so they were just like it's, it was a, smelled terrible it was just like a horror show yeah. But, I got used to it, but it, it was it was a terrifying part of that job. How did you land that gig? My mother was a, a psychiatric nurse at the hospital. Gotcha. And I think every everybody who worked on the weekends, which is what I did, I was going to university, and everybody who worked on the weekends was essentially a, like a spoiled it's sons and daughters of doctors, essentially. My mother was not a doctor, but like everybody there, they're, do- you know, my, one of my best friends to this day, Matt Murphy, no relation. Uh, I met him there in the summer of 1986. And, you know, his dad was a heart surgeon. He was not a spoiled brat. He was a, uh, he was a good guy. Uh, his mother was a doctor too, actually. But, um, but, uh, yeah, a lot of these people had connections to get them jobs on the weekends. Everybody who worked on the weekdays were um, kind of uneducated lifers. You know, it was a simple job. Right. And so there was a weird mix. So if I took extra shifts in the summer, we were, you know, college-educated, spoiled kids mingling with these kind of like, not simple people, but people, you know, they made actually pretty good money. Like they make... I I made in 1986. I started at $7.10 and I think the minimum wage was like $3 or something. Yeah, yeah. So I made lots of money and I paid for my own university and everything. But uh it was a great job. I did it for 5 years. And then I went r- right into Sloan and then I haven't had a job since. I I guess yeah, it's like a real mixture of uh yeah, kind of, you know, higher class kids and then like kind of blue collar yeah like blue collar blue collar weekday people and then just like the 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 sons and daughters sons and daughters of white collar people and then some you know it's definitely like kind of like a crash course in kind of class class issues a little bit and you know the and i don't know where we were a middle class family and my grown-up family is fairly middle class too but uh um I mean, I didn't. I certainly didn't have a problem with any of the people who worked weekdays. Yeah. But uh, you know, some of them were 
were nut jobs, <laughs> but some of them were just like normal people keep putting their, keeping their heads down, trying to keep their job and trying to make money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you prefer video games, board games, or sports? Of the three, I would say board games. I basically have no interest in sports. I, I did play hockey as a kid, and I played hockey as an adult in the Exclaim kind of hockey league, okay. which I was I was coerced into that by a guy named Tom Goodwin, whose politics was like, he was basically like, do you want to... I, yeah, we all quit hockey as kids. Do you want to play? It's going to be, there's going to be women. It's going to be community. It's going to be, bring your kids. It was like this community-minded, fair, you know, not not beer league, not violent. Right. And so I, I, so starting in about 2000, I did it for almost 20 years. Like I was part of that league, um, sometimes called the Exclaim League, sometimes called the Good Times Hockey League. Um, I think there's another name for it too. But that became my community. Like I, I had a lot of fun doing that. It was awesome. But I don't watch sports. Like everybody talked about hockey, like about what was happening in the NHL, and I, I haven't watched the NHL since, since the seventies, basically. Jay, Jay Ferguson, my my esteemed colleague in Sloan, says that it was he had a, like a huge hockey card collection, and then once John Lennon was shot in December nineteen eighty, it was like all music, and it was kind of like that for me. Yeah, too. yeah. What what are do you have like go to board games? Um, well, we tried playing, you know, uh, like Settlers of Catan or that kind of right. thing. With the, uh, my my wife found it kind of annoying. We played <laughs> kind of I think kind of a, a a more childish version of not childish but like kid friendly version of that called Bunny Kingdom. Have you ever heard of I that? I have not. No. It's just kind of like. It's just a, you. There's a board with a with a, a map and territories that you can have, like a grid and, and and cards that represent all of the land territories. And some of the territories have cities, and some have um, you can farm or fish or what you know. You, you just it, there's a and then there's like you add up points at the end of each round. It's pretty fun. Like as a family, we we have a lot of fun doing it. Uh, is there a, a hobby or a pastime that you've gotten into that you kind of surprised yourself, uh, didn't seem like something that you would be into in the past? My, my biggest hobby is essentially my job, which is Sloan and sort of collecting and like trying to imagine what people or collectors would want us to do. Um, Jay and I, especially we, we, you know, the main bond that we have uh, is just as fans, we get to be also in a band that creates. We're not. We're I, I, Jay collects everything. I basically just collect myself. I'm just like a disgusting <laughs> narcissist. My, if you looked at my collection, it's just a shrine to myself. But you know, we're like, what should we do next? Well, let's. Uh, you know, this record's out of print. Let's do that. And when we do that, let's do an extra bonus thing, and then let's make it. Let's finally make a video for the song that never had a video. And and uh, but you know, I have a lot of you know i can use final cut and i can edit videos together and you know we just made a video on our, for our new record that uh you know my buddy harris shot but i edited the whole thing and i have so i kind of think of that as kind of my hobby but yeah, I also yeah. i i'm fortunate enough to call it my job and then i'm trying to think of other hobbies that have nothing to do with that um i don't know <laughs> Not, not really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, I guess that uh, hanging out with my kids and sort of like being into whatever they're into. So, you know, they listen to a lot of music. I don't know. I'm not that into a lot of modern music, but, uh, but, uh, you know, I hear a lot of it from my kids. I don't know what my question is. Do you, is there a good hobby that you have that, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's it's things like, uh, you know, got really into gardening over the course of the pandemic, which was just kind of like a healthy, uh, you know, uh, place to put a lot of energy. <laughs> um, I like doing that too, but I'm a real folk artist. When we bought this house in 2009, it had a pretty elaborate garden. And um, so stuff comes up every year and that's, you know, it looks kind of nice. All I'm doing is gradually over time, ruining it essentially <laughs> but we also we planted we planted four trees in our backyard so it really looks like a nice little parquet back yeah, there yeah 
um, as it was just kind of like an open grass field with surrounded by like little garden flowers but it looks like a nice parquette back there and the other thing that i did that was i don't know if it's a hobby but it was a time-consuming pandemic project was uh, digitizing old videos and hi8 tapes and vhs tapes that i oh, have yeah i have so much of that so i wanted to uh i want all that stuff digitized and i want it done properly so i had to do it myself but it just took forever and I still have the, the next format is called Mini DV. It starts around 1999 <laughs> and goes till about 2010. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm familiar. So I, ha- I haven't done any. I haven't done any of those yet. So, hopefully, there's another pandemic. <laughs> uh, we got uh, two rapid fire ones left. Is there an album that spurred your love of music? Um, my the thing that spurred my love of music was was Kiss. Um, my parents had records at home. They had uh, Joni Mitchell and and some Beatles records, which I love. And you know, Beatles are kind of my favorite. And uh, Everly Brothers and Johnny Cash and stuff like that. And I liked all that, and I'm steeped in that. But whenever Kiss came along, I was they were on the Paul Lynn Halloween special at the end of 1976, and I saw that, and I was probably in grade two, and that was my Ed Sullivan. And everybody in school saw it. And uh, the the record that was just out was called Destroyer. But the first record that I received was called The Originals, which was a weird, maybe in Canada only, reissue. Kiss did three records that were flops. Then they did a live record that got really popular. And then they did Destroyer, which was, which was huge and had the song Beth on it. But So their first three records were repackaged as a three-album set called The Originals, and I got that for my birthday or something. And uh, and just would just fantasize about being in a band, wanted to take guitar lessons, would put makeup on and my mother's high heel boots and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. So I really... So this is 1976, so that's a long time ago. But, uh, but it really changed my life, kind of. You know, I kind of, you know, by 1980... I wasn't as enamored with them and they took their makeup off and then I completely lost interest and they changed members. <laughs> I mean, it's another part of my story is that once they changed members, I was not interested in them. And so, you know, that's why I, I cling so desperately to the to this lineup of Sloan, even though it would probably work more efficiently without any one or two of us. <laughs> but uh, but I really, I'm a sucker for, for chemistry and, and uh, I just... Uh, I would be less interested in the story of my band if anyone left. Yeah. So I try to keep everyone try to keep everyone interested. Have you ever had any run-ins with the with the Kiss fellas? I did meet Paul Stanley in 1998 or nine. He was in town um, doing the uh, Phantom of the Opera. He was the lead in the Phantom of the Opera <laughs> okay. in Toronto, and I was at Q107, the rock radio station happenstantially doing something for Sloan. And then it was mentioned on air that the radio programmer was going to be, or the DJ was going to be interviewing Paul Stanley. And I said, oh, in a couple of weeks, I said, can I come to that and watch? Because I'm a huge Kiss fan. Yeah. And he said, and then he ended up emailing me or whatever saying, why don't you be part of the interview? And so I went to Tower Records at the corner of Queen and Young, where the radio DJ and I interviewed Paul Stanley, but, uh, it's, I could tell the story. I could take 10 minutes telling the story, but it takes too long. But, <laughs> but, uh, he, I think that Paul Stanley thought that I was essentially making fun of him. Cause I just looked like a, you know, I had glasses. Like I was like this ironic hipster <laughs> guy, guy. And I, but my love for him was real, even though he was, he didn't really deliver. He was kind of, he was a bit boring, but, uh, but he was trying to promote the Phantom of the Opera, right. and there were the, the the record store was packed with Kiss fans just asking him Kiss questions, and he kept trying to turn it into something about the Phantom of <laughs> the Opera. So it was it was comical, but you know we we definitely didn't form a a, a bond or anything yeah. like that. But but over over the years, like I've read his, I've read his book, I've read all of their books, I think, and I feel for Paul because Gene. Uh, I I think in some ways I'm like Gene, but Gene is like the biggest a hole in the business. Basically, yeah, like yeah. he's a giant jerk. But you know, I'm kind of like him too. Like I'm driven, and I'm 
I'm a cheapskate. I'm like, let's do this for cheap and let's just keep it going. And I'm I'm sober. Like I never drank. Like he's like famously never drank and yeah, yeah. did drugs. So I relate to him, but I also I think his I and I also think he's inspiringly honest too about his motives. Like you know, he would talk about wanting money or wanting women or whatever he says. Like I kind of tend to believe him more than. I don't know, Bruce Springsteen, who says, I'm just a working man, but meanwhile, he's a millionaire. Right, yeah. Whatever, nothing against Bruce Springsteen, but I just think that... Anyway, but uh, but I think that Paul, you know, has had to deal with Gene and what an arsehole he is. <laughs> and so and so I feel for Paul. Anyway, I still... My love for Kiss is, remains, but uh, I haven't listened to their music since 1979. Yeah, it's... Uh... I'm not a big, uh, like, internet meme guy, uh, but somewhere there exists, it's like an hour-long compilation of just Paul Stanley uh, trying to hype up the crowd. Interstitial yeah, stuff? Just, yeah, I have those. It's yeah. fantastic. But I love I love him for that. And he's, well, like Kiss Again with my own band, I'm the Paul Stanley in that I'm like, how's everybody doing? <laughs> and meanwhile, Jay's just standing there and everybody's like, Jay's so cool. I'm like, I'm working my ass off of here. <laughs> but then, you know, I, I was the same kid. You know, I was like, Ace Freely is so cool. But meanwhile, he's essentially just drunk on stage. And Paul Stanley is like working his ass off, <laughs> jumping five feet in the air with his boots on, singing at the top of his lungs all night long. But I just thought Paul was the lamest one. <laughs> but, you know, he's the one who's probably working the hardest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very last question then on this side of things. Uh, are there any uh, up-and-coming Canadian bands that you're really into, that you're, uh, that you're a fan of? Uh, I never... I, I should have been prepared for that. <laughs> I don't really know a lot that's going on. Uh, I've played a few times with a guy named Daniel Monkman, whose band is called Zoom. Oh yeah, yeah, I've I've t- I've chatted with him before. And so he's played. I play in another group called Tons T U N S, and we played with Zoom, and we play Sloan played with Zoom. So I've got to know him, and and so he's he plays in another band. I've, I got to think of how it's spelled and pronounced. I'm just yeah, that's uh, probably Ambegazi. It's like. Umbagazi, yeah. yeah, exactly. So I played with them the other night with my Tons band, and they share members with that status, non-status, and I've come to know a lot of those guys, and I think that they're all super cool and wish them well and hope to cross paths with them again. Excellent. Well, uh, let's uh, let's kind of dive into the second half of things here. Um, I, I always feel the need to ask, I guess, with any record that has come out in the past you know year or so whether it started its life as a pandemic era project or whether it was kind of in the works before that but uh yeah i guess uh when when did work on steady kind of start up it it was um i get mixed up with these years because sometimes like years went by and nothing happened i feel like we started recording the drums what year is it right now? 2022? 2022. I think we started recording the drums around two years ago now. Gotcha. And so we started doing the drums, and we did the drums. We recorded them. We've done this before, but uh, we recorded them all to a four-track cassette player in our rehearsal space, which we don't have anymore. And um, because... We we did a we've recorded a bunch of records in our studio space, but it was just uh, it becoming essentially a, a giant junk pile. We had so much stuff in there. Um, the the person with whom we made the past five records or so, Ryan Haslett, he owned a lot of the gear. We owned some of the gear, but he moved all of the recording gear to his house, to his basement, which was not really conducive to recording drums. So we recorded just surrounded by junk. Uh, just on a four-track cassette player. And so do I have to explain what a cassette is? You know, just like an a- analog analog uh, technology, uh, you know, 80s, 70s, 80s technology. And uh, Are so, we talking like one of the, the TIAC kind of like four-track? Uh, yeah, Tascam, though. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Tascam, but TIAC, yeah, exactly the same thing. The, the TIAC one or... Um, are you picturing like a dark brown one? We've done them on those too. This was like a beige. It had six inputs, but we only used four. Gotcha. And we've done it before. We, we we recorded our 
most commercially successful record this way, one chord to another. Um, th three of us were living in Halifax and Andrew lived in Toronto at that point and he was coming down for Christmas and we basically just had one day to do the drums. So we set up the four track in our tiny rehearsal space there and he banged through all the songs. We brought them to a 16 track studio and and finished the record that way. And that became... I mean, that sold 80,000 copies, you know, with like just really low yeah. expectations. And so our expectation, then our expectations got big, but now again, our expectations <laughs> are back to being low. But uh, so we recorded the four tracks of, um, at the time we recorded four tracks of drums in 1996 or 1995. And then we bounced them to a 16 track, again, still tape machine, right. but now everything is digital. And so we did the four tracks of analog but we put put it into uh, pro tools and uh just just overdubbed at ryan's basement kind of one at a time we haven't been really a romantic band that has really jammed out songs or like we don't really play all together we kind of like work it out first and then kind of okay uh, the drums go like this because i know where everything comes and it's all kind of worked out beforehand so we don't really play together um so in some ways we're kind of made for the pandemic we we can go in one at a time and get a record done <laughs> so yeah so two years ago the drums started and then we started doing some overdubs wearing masks and then there were long periods of time where we couldn't do anything and then then there was like i think uh, a year ago when there was like a window where we could record for a little while right. but then that shut again or like delta time or whatever <laughs> but uh yeah so it was definitely done in fits and spurts during the pandemic yeah yeah Andrew in a song mentions wearing his mask but other than that I think that um, and Jay has a song says do you have to leave your home in another song but those are the only kind of like clues of the pandemic we're not really talking about uh, well Andrew I guess is talking about wearing his mask but it's I, I wouldn't say that lyrically it's really uh, all about yeah, yeah. being in a pandemic or for anything. sure um, it is is one of you guys like the kind of producer engineer type? Uh, just even talking about uh, recording on the four track like that, like one of you surely has uh, some depth of knowledge on that stuff. Um, I think we all have. Andrew is Andrew is probably pretty laissez faire, and when we record, he's just like, just record me, whatever. <laughs> I mean, he has an idea about the sounds. Uh, Andrew, as a drummer, is just like the best drummer in the world. Um, and he, we, we, when we, when the world kind of switched to digital in the late '90s, early 2000s, Jay and Patrick and I all at least learned how to make demos digitally. But Andrew kind of right. didn't. He's only kind of learned GarageBand maybe in the past three or four years, it seems. But uh, so he's not really that big on sounds. He's just like set up a mic, I'm going to do this. Uh, Jay is more particular, he's very particular, but I don't think that he really knows how gear works. He'll just sit there and complain until it's right. <laughs> or not complain, but like I'll just be reading his face. Like if he just looks like, you know, he's got a who farted face. I got And then I'm just like, what do we need to do to make this guy happy? And then once he's happy, then I know it's going all right. But uh, I, and I basically just want to please Jay Patrick's aesthetic is different than Jay's. Patrick likes saturated guitar sounds and, right. you know, he heavy rock and, you know, probably thinks that the rest of us are just making wimpy music kind of thing. <laughs> but Ryan Haslett, Ryan Haslett is, uh, he's, he likes rock music too, but he's, he's also, he knows us now and knows kind of how to play all sides. Right. And the, the other thing about recording the drums to a four track is I thought it kind of, imposed a, a a sort of sound that would affect everything. So even if Patrick's songs got really heavy and Jay's songs were quite thin or lightweight, they would share a drum sound kind right. of thing that would kind of that would kind of unite them. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. I I think yeah. uh, like a lot of the questions I, I feel like I want to ask are to do with managing uh, the kind of dynamic of a band where everybody's writing songs. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I'm 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 ready to answer anything like that. How? Um, I I guess even just right off the bat, like, 
um, when you start prepping a new record, like it feels inevitable to me that everybody kind of pursues uh, their own interests when they're writing a batch of songs, if that makes sense. Like, you know, you find yourself going towards this kind of sound. Um, Mm -hmm. How, like, how do you guys get back together and then play these songs through and try to bring some sense of like consistency to a whole record? I mean, that's a good question. I don't think that we are um, determined to make anything sound consistent. It's essentially, you know, when when we were making, you know, we have been criticized over the years of making compilation-style records. You know, this just, this, what band is this? This is four bands, this is three bands, or whatever. And personally, I... I uh, I feel like I have a vantage point where I can, I sometimes joke that I make, when I'm writing songs, if we're writing three songs each, I make one for Jay, one for Patrick, and one for Andrew, <laughs> sort of to make, meaning that Jay's writing 70s AM Bee Gees music, and Andrew's writing 60s psychedelic, you know, freak out music, and Patrick's writing 70s hard rock and then I can do all of those things, and I like to do a little bit of all of them, essentially to make them all make sense together. Right. You know, I, I feel like if you took my songs out, it sound it sounds even more disparate. Uh, and and my songs are kind of like the, if you know your Spinal Tap, the lukewarm water <laughs> between the fire and ice of uh, <laughs> David Saint Hubbins and Nigel Tufnell. Yeah, yeah. But um, but uh, our favorite records are, you know the white album or by the Beatles, if that's not clear or Beatles revolver record, which starts with tax man and then Eleanor Rigby. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, do those songs make sense together? Like, um, we have attempted in 2003, we attempted to make a less eclectic record. That record is called action Pact, And we thought we worked with a producer and we normally don't. And then we worked with a guy named Tom Rothrock who said, Let's forego all of the piano stuff and the sort of ex- eccentric stuff, eclectic rather stuff. And uh, let's just do, you've got the best drummer in rock and you've got these high harmonies you guys can do. Let's just make a hard rock. Let's make AC, an ACDC record with harmonies. Right. And the, my, my joke about that was like, yeah, we got all excited. And then we thought, well, that's Def Leppard. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, uh, that's the kind of record we made, and I find when I listen to it, I find it a little bit unidimensional, and but it doesn't bother me. It was just like just another record that we did. I like sometimes I look at a song itself and what does the song need. Sometimes I look, I I take, I zoom back. What does the record need? And then I then I zoom back again, and, and I think, what kind of record does our career need, or not career, but just like our discography, right? You know, we have so we have that kind of like record that's like that you could argue it's unidimensional but now that we've made uh six records since then it was just it's just a blip it's just like oh that's what they did at that time right um at the time i was that was in 2003 and our next record didn't come out until 2006 and i remember thinking being frustrated by how that record turned out and that it just seemed like our last statement for so long right but uh but then we followed it up with a 30-song, very eclectic double record, which I thought was a masterpiece. And I don't know if people are saying it is, but uh, it is. <laughs> and uh, and then that, you know, and then when you do a record like that, and it kind of, you give it everything you have, and, you know, people are like, hey, that's cool too. <laughs> um, you know, we I, I remember thinking that if we if we had if a new band had done that that we would have got a lot more mileage but it's it's harder and harder to impress people when it's your eighth and ninth record and now we've made our 13th right and so we just embrace we just embrace it it's just like there's nothing we can do our palette is probably established you know sometimes you know i put a song on our late this record called steady i put a song on it that's almost kind of country and western right which is a kind of kind of music that you know, I don't, it's not my favorite or anything like that. I just kind of did it. It's it's kind of just like Beatles adjacent again. It's kind of like rubber soul country kind of thing. Yeah. So I like playing with the formula a little bit, but you know, the formula is set. 
I'll just say one more thing. Like with a comedian, like I'm a big fan of comedy. If you would ask me like comedians that I like, I have a long list of people that I love. Uh, Chris Locke is my favorite local comedian. But, um, you know, but once you've seen someone do their fifth or sixth Netflix special, it's hard to get, even if their jokes are great. Like when you kind of know all the moves, it's, I guess it's, it becomes predictable. Yeah. And I guess I ha I, that sort of happens with Sloan, but, um, but I just think of every record as a sort of shuffled deck of hopefully things that you like. It's just like another, you like chocolate? Well, <laughs> eat this box of chocolate too. Yeah, yeah. Do you find that when you sit down to write, like you're sitting down and working towards a purpose? Like, you know, I want to write this kind of song or I want to write about this kind of subject matter or is it more... Um, like more kind of happenstance than that. It's pretty happenstance. Um, you know, in the years since I've had kids, I've had, you know, I had, le I have, my time is opening up now, but you know, in 2007 to 2000, I don't know, 15, like it was impossible to find time to do it. So I was just really just cooking up, song ideas that I did before I had kids, like for years, like doing that. So I have lots of song ideas. I don't usually sit down and write chords and words together. I, I'll write entire songs of all the chords and, and uh, melodies worked out. And now I'm like, oh, I got to fill this thing with words. <laughs> and that's, I shouldn't do it that way. I've, I've done it the other way before, but it's just, uh, I just, as an adult or whatever, I just find it, I don't know if it's about being an adult, but like I have, it's more fun to write the music and then the writing the lyrics is more laborious. Right. But I, I want to do a good job of writing lyrics. I don't want a cool song to be marred with just a crappy lyric. And I have songs like that too, that I think are, are cool that whatever the, the lyrics aren't that great, yeah. but, but I, I'm proud of my lyrics, but I, you know, I don't mean to suggest that I consider myself a poet. I think anyone who's a self-professed poet is just <laughs> full of it. You know, I don't want to know yeah. that. Do you remember when you wrote the first uh, first song that you thought, like, this is not garbage. This is not bad. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, I, I was in bands before Sloan, and I had some songs that I that I liked. I guess. Um, but when we when we had uh, our first single in Sloan was called Underwhelmed, right? And that was a lyrics first song. That was from a time when I had a painful journal full of poems or whatever. You know, my coffee shop hanging out teenage life. <laughs> you know, I, I wrote the wrote all those words as as a teenager, and then I just had them in a book. And Andrew and I were we were in our early twenties, you know, twenty three or something, and I. I was I, I don't know if I was reading it or if I memorized it, but I made up literally, literally music on the spot to fill that song, and that's what that song is and remains. Yeah. And and you know, it, it, uh, we thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't think that our first record, our first record from a production standpoint, is very of the time. But I think that the songs are strong. Like I don't. It's not like I'm embarrassed of our first four records or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I might be kind of embarrassed of some of the music I made before Sloan, but that's not. I don't think of that as. Uh, most of that's not on the internet. I, I mean, I'm not embarrassed of it really because I was a kid. But I just mean I think that the Sloan discography is pretty immaculate. Yeah, yeah. I I, I wanted to touch on too just. Um how you feel like particularly the kind of like uh i'm gonna say like can con industry just like canadian music and its ability to be popular has kind of changed since uh sloan kind of started up because you you guys got signed to geffen fairly early right uh, right, right yeah, away yeah yeah um and, and to some extent just like doing research for this it, it struck me that it's like i don't know that that's a thing that happens anymore or at least like definitely not in Canada right um well I think that there are a lot of 
I think that there were there were a lot of you know the bare naked ladies and maybe Our Lady Peace and you know some bands that had record labels you know in the states you know kind of by, bypassed uh, signing to a Canadian label. I don't know what you what the question would be about CanCon. We've definitely benefited from CanCon because you know CanCon for anybody who doesn't know is just it's uh basically the rules that the government imposes on broadcasters to play a certain amount of Canadian uh uh music or uh yeah yeah product or whatever <laughs> to to uh to encourage industry in Canada and we've definitely benefited from that you know sometimes people say i can't believe why you know you were so big in canada why didn't you make it in the states it's like the question is like how did we make it at all in canada it's because we have canadian content regulations that forced broadcasters to play our music you know you know when you're in the states you're competing with guns and roses or madonna in canada you're competing with uh, i don't know the our, you know i mother earth or the gandharvas or something like these yeah, bands yeah. that are are you know we're lucky to be on the radio you know i mean i don't mean nothing disparaging about anyone but but uh you know the the music that we made and continue to continue to make it's pop i think of it as pop music but you know when you compare it to justin bieber or um i don't know alicia cara or like yeah, I, yeah. I get, that's that's pop music so I don't know. I guess I guess we're a rock band, but we have a pop sensibility. Like most most modern rock, I think is terrible. Like I can't <laughs> get into it. But the thing is, you have to either go extreme. If you want to be on rock radio, you have to scream right and, and have just like giant guitars. And if you want to be on pop radio, you have to have samples and drum machines and sing about I don't know teenage love or something yeah yeah you know we're we're kind of i don't we don't we have we have fans i'm not complaining <laughs> you know people but uh but we're we're somewhere in the middle of those things but you know i think we i think we write we write a line that we that we like aesthetically and so this is just what we do but yeah so canadian content has helped us i don't mean to i think that a lot of crap has risen to the top because of canadian content yeah yeah and but but um, but a lot of crap has risen to the top in the states without you know <laughs> the the CanCon equivalent you know whether you're you know tied to the mafia or I don't know like like big money influences things there and grants influence things here I don't know but uh, um, I don't know what the question was yeah we signed to Geffen pretty much right away that was like that was a different that had nothing to do with CanCon that was about uh, the music industry in the wake of Nirvana. Nirvana broke in, in September 1991, just as we started recording as this four-piece. And uh, so we were just perfectly perfectly timed. And when we came out, our single Underwhelm got a lot of love from, not, not across the board, but you know, from in Toronto, uh, CFNY, aka The Edge or whatever, like yeah, yeah. played it even when it was just like on a compilation CD, like they were able to do stuff like that. I think it was kind of like also kind of like a pre-corporate world for alternative commercial alternative radio. And there was, they were the only game in town or in Canada, like as a commercial alternative radio station. But then the commercial alternative kind of became a viable thing in Canada. Anyway, um, yeah, we signed to Geffen right away. It was it was big news in Canada. It was enormous news in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Like it was just never heard yeah, of. Yeah. The biggest band before us was Jellyfish Babies, who put out a record that that just lived under their bed, and then they moved to Toronto and essentially broke up because it was um, because it was before Nirvana and nobody was paying attention. Right. I I, I guess I'm I'm curious if you think that that kind of like uh pathway to success still exists because i i know like we cover uh you know a, a lot of bands like like on or there's a band from new brunswick called motherhood that i'm a huge fan of where uh you know i'll listen to those records and it's like this is like the greatest thing i've ever heard this is so cool um but there isn't really the same kind of label support and things are uh so much more disparate i guess like um 
is is there such a thing as as a Canadian band becoming very popular among Canadians, right? Or is that kind of uh, gone at this point? I don't know. I think I think uh, I don't have any. You know, if I'm asked about streaming or the future of this and that, like I have no idea. I cling desperately to a brand name, Sloan, our band name, brand name, yeah. which is a pre pre internet. We got we got lucky right off the bat, and we had made a name for ourselves before the internet, basically. And and I realize how hard it is to do. You know, there are lots of ways to sort of, I guess, get in and sort of like easy come, easy go, fast track. You get picked up on TikTok or this kind of thing. I don't know how that's done. I know that it happens, but I have no, I have no insight to that. And I and I would think that if you got big through TikTok, the, the, then the question is like, how do I make this last for thirty years? Yeah, like, yeah, it's it's, it's impossible. Uh, so my only advice I ever give is just to make music when you're young enough that it doesn't matter that there's no money in it because <laughs> there's not. Yeah, you know, I played I played in bands from 1986 to 1991, and I probably made a total of you know, $3,000 or something like that. But I was living at home, going to school, and it was, I didn't care. Yeah, I was just happy to play with friends. It was just like a, something social to do with friends. And um, and then if something, you know, there was, there was no plan in 1986 when I was playing at the YWCA or whatever. It's like, okay, in five years, what I want to do, like, <laughs> the, the very idea... You know, I was going to university because I was probably going to be a teacher. Like, what else do people do? Um, and when we got a break, it was almost like uh, it soured something in Halifax because people had different aspirations then. It was right. like, oh, we're going to get a deal too. You know, the kind of romance of, you know, playing for nothing on a seven-band bill <laughs> just because you wanted to. It sounded like a cool show and, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, not to say that those days were gone, but like as people were getting into their mid twenties, it was like, is there money in this? Like, can we keep going? Um, so you know, a lot of people got record deals. A lot of our friends, and you know, we're we're the ones who kind of made it last the longest, and partly because we we split all of the songwriting, we split all of the money equally, so that not one, not just one person would become rich, or you know, so that we bond in good times and bad. Oh, this didn't do very well. Right. We all suffer. This did well. We all benefit. I think that's what you have to do. But it's hard when there's no money. If and if you're if you're a genius and you're like, I got to surround myself with people that I can't pay them, so I have to pretend it's kind of a band, but really it's my thing. <laughs> you know that that becomes obvious after a while. You know, um, but you know, so in some ways, I was the central character in Sloan. I didn't feel at all like a genius, but I had the most material, so it was my band to share in the first place. Right. And I wanted to have a band. I I knew early, and we had a a manager character who also encouraged us to split everything, no matter what. And part of part of sharing the money was also to insist that other people uh, took some responsibility too. It's like, well, now in exchange, I want you to write songs too. I can't do everything. Right. It wasn't like that where I was like begging people to do like I was just like encouraging like let's all write songs why not yeah, yeah. and I guess I feel I feel politically like everybody can write songs like I bet Ringo Ringo did write a song but um, <laughs> you know if he had been maybe encouraged a little bit more he could have done a little bit more uh, and George Harrison obviously with encouragement was writing great songs but like he had kind of crappy songs in the beginning yeah yeah but. Um, but you know, I wrote the lion's share of the song. I wrote maybe seven of the songs in the first record, five of the songs in the second record, or whatever. You know, it just kept kind of going down till by the time we made our our fifth record, we all wrote the same amount of songs, but we split the money equally from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, yeah. So, I I have no idea how to rig the system. <laughs> I I just think that. If it would be good if you're if you're like a solo artist, I guess it's a whole different thing. It's just like I guess you got to find a manager and a lawyer to help you 
put together a team. I don't know. <laughs> I just find the idea when there's when there's no money in it at first, you either agree to share it with these people and you rise together or or you have to take any money that comes in and give it to everybody else so that you can own the intellectual property or whatever. Right. But that's the hard part. It's like there's no money in this. Do you guys still want to do the it just it's just always murky because when there is no money, the person who ultimately wants to have all that control, they wanna say, I wanna pay you guys because I wanna own everything, but they they can't afford to do it. So they're kinda like encouraging this band vibe. Yeah, yeah. But really they have no intention of splitting everything once money comes in. But they don't even know that because they're young. But yeah, uh anyway. I've been there. I, I uh. just think <laughs> I just I just think sharing is the best way. Yeah. Even though like even like you know Patrick who has written the majority of the songs that have made us the most money like when he looks at Spotify he's probably like you know if we hadn't split the publishing I'd be rich and right know, yeah yeah. So so there's room there's room for resentment but I also think that the songs are what they are because of the band that we built and all that kind of stuff. So it's uh I don't think he can you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, as, as we get to the end of things here, uh, we, we normally feature a track at the end of the episode and uh, chat about okay. it a little bit. Uh, I, was, I was thinking I might play uh, Nice Work If You Can Get It, uh, if you want to chat about that for a minute. I, uh, I'm a huge Beatles guy, and so that one... Uh, yeah, that's definitely Beatles slash Ruddles. <laughs> uh, yeah, basically. Like, what, what's, what's a way we can sort of, like, Essentially, play a Beatles song without exactly playing a Beatles song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a I'm I'm a Beatles guy too. Jay as well. Andrew somewhat. Patrick the least. But uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a definitely. Um, yeah, I've had friends like fellow Beatle nerd friends say say, "Oh, I like your songs. You did Beatles '65, Beatles '68, a combination <laughs> of Beatles '66 and '68. The chorus is '68. The the middle part, anyway." Uh, yeah, it's, uh, definitely kind of like, um, day tripper kind of guitars yeah, and yeah. rubber soul kind of production. Yeah. That's, that's my thing. It's my favorite type of music. And lyrically it's a song essentially about, it's kind of a frustrated futility of, of being in a band and why do we go to the States? And, uh, even though, you know, we enjoy, we have fans in the States that, actually love us more than the fans in Canada. You know, the fans in Canada may have heard us on the Big Shiny Tunes compilation, so <laughs> they, they might come and see us because of that, but they might not know all the B-sides, but if you know us in the States, it's because somebody gave you a tape and you know what I yeah, mean? Like yeah. We're not on mainstream. So people down there, you know, they'd be like, oh, I like Sloan and Pavement or Apples and Stereo, like these kind of like credible bands from our time whereas up here it'd be like oh i like sloan and the tea party and and moist or whatever and we're just like I, we don't know any of those people <laughs> like, yeah I, I figured i was gonna take a shot in the dark too and see if you're a you're an xtc uh fan if you're into that stuff i think th i'm not i i don't dislike them at all i like what i know but i'm not uh I I hear from people, they'll say, you must love, right. whether it's Big Star, XTC, Todd Rundgren. Like, I don't really know any of those things. I essentially know the Beatles and Kiss. It's like, basically, <laughs> I, I'm playing like a, a harder rock version of, of the Beatles, which I think, I think the Kiss just love the Beatles, too. If you listen to the first three Kiss records, and I don't really recommend them to you, I think, as <laughs> looking at you, but uh, you seem—you probably already know too much. But I think that they are just like power pop records. Right. And then once they kind of became huge, then they kind of be, were kind of singing as personas. Gene Simmons would sing as the demon. Right. But like in the first on the first record, he's like, "I'd like to be your Tuesday." Like he's got a cool rock voice. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, but, uh, I think I love the first three Kiss records, but you know, I, <laughs> I, I had them playing all of grade two. Um, but, uh, what was the point you were making? XTC. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I know what's great about them. And it's like, it's like real craft and, and, uh, I, I like that. I should probably 
turn on to that a little bit more. Rundgren as well. Like I like what I've heard. Yeah, yeah. And what's another? What's an, What's what's your? What's another Venn diagram with XTC in your mind? Uh, I I mean a lot of that. Uh, like, like keep Elephant mentioning. Six. Okay, Elephant Six. I don't know anything. about Oh, that. sorry. So that's that's not a band. I, re- that, that's I remember like, uh, the it's collective. like the collective. I remember that. Yeah. So Which who's I think in Apples that? And st- I think Apples, Apples and, and Stereo. Stereo and like and Olivia Tremor Control. Yeah, yeah. I like man, we that. we are familiar with all that. Jay knows that stuff more. Like we we're of that vintage, and we played we played a show with Olivia Tremor Control in New York. Yeah, yeah. Like a million years ago, and uh, um, yeah, I don't I don't know it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but uh, no, I remember all that time. My favorite groups like that were kind of contemporaries, although maybe a little. Uh, I loved Supergrass. I loved that first Elastica record. Yeah. Um, we loved Nirvana. Like we worshipped My Bloody Valentine. Yeah, yeah. I loved. We loved Stereolab. I saw Stereolab's first North American show. <laughs> cool. We loved them. Yeah. And, um, but uh, I feel like to me, like I'm running. That's like running to the end of my interest in music. Is like the early nineties. Yeah, like, yeah. Like I, you know, Elastica. Super first Supergrass record. I liked. I I liked. They they made great records, but the first record we really copied that first record when we made our third record. We really kind of changed into their band. <laughs> we we really like we really like those first Weezer records too. Oh, like, yeah. It was hard for me to take because they were signed by the same guy who signed us to Geff Geffen. Right. Yeah. And we, as we were kind of failing and flailing, they were taking off. So I was always jealous of Weezer. <laughs> But but I I think that you know our joke is that Weezer's first record should have been our second record. That's what we should have done. <laughs> then we'd be huge. But uh, we we made this like quiet, you know, Velvet Underground third record, <laughs> Fleetwood Mac, John Lennon, Plastic Ono band reference. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like what is this? Anyway. Well, uh, we're we're gonna listen to a track here called uh, "Nice Work If You Can Get It." Uh, I think that's the end of the show. <laughs> thank, thanks so much. Th- thank you for having oh, me. Oh yeah, thanks so much for sitting this, down the th- chat. I, I just, wa- I just want to say this song talks about kind of going down south and what, what, why, what are we doing here, kind of thing. And I was like, my buddy Stephen Page, who you may know, he played in Bare Naked Ladies years ago. His joke about touring the states is, it's like you go to the border, you put a suitcase of money on the top of the car, and you open the suitcase, and you just start driving. <laughs> And it just—it's just flying out of the car as you drive south, and I—I I kind of agree. But I do like going to the states where there are people who are, you know, Sloan experts. I think the people who know the most about us don't live in Canada. Well, uh, yeah. Thanks so much again. I—I uh, I really enjoyed the new record. It was great to listen to. Thank you very much. Uh, it was nice to talk to you. You seem versed in music and whatever. You—you're a good guy to talk to.
When I got nothing on my mind. Inside the Artist Studio is produced by Sean Davis Newton for the Cups and Cakes Network. The featured track, Nice Work If You Can Get It, was played with permission from Sloan. Thanks to Laundry Week for the use of their song, Nothing On My Mind, from the Grimpy EP as our intro and outro music. Inside the Artist Studio is one of the many ways the Cups and Cakes Network highlights Canadian music. Visit our website, cupsandcakespod.com, to browse our audio, video, and written content. That's Cups, the letter N, cakespod.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>